And here we are with New Edge Sword and Sorcery Monthly Story Chat. And it's January 2024. We're going to be doing something that Christopher Rao, who is one of our guests on the panel tonight, uh, suggested, which I thought was a great idea. Uh, he suggested that we do a read and like kind of comparison looking at the evolution of uh, Michael Moorcock's prose and everything else related to that as it pertains to the very first ever Elric story, The Dreaming City, published in 1961, and the very latest Elric story, The Folk of the Forest, published in New Edge Sword and Sorcery, issue one, which came out right at the end of November last year. So uh, I'm going to introduce the panel here. I guess we'll start there. Uh, so yes, as I mentioned, Christopher Rao is here. We also have Jay Wolf and Kevin Beckett, our marvelous social media maven and usually the technical guy behind this, and he is again tonight, uh, are all joining us on stage. Uh, starting with Kevin, then Jay, then Christopher, if you could each give us a short intro for anybody who, you know, this might be their first recording. I do the social media for uh, New Edge Social, uh, sorry, New Edge uh, Sword and Sorcery Magazine. And uh, what we are just doing is doing this roundtable. You can also find me do, editing the email newsletter, Just the Axe Ma'am, uh, which covers new and notable sword and sorcery. And yeah, I like most people, I got a couple of short stories published here and there. Awesome, Jay. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I anticipated you a little, a little off. No, no worries. Um, I'm Jay Wolf, uh, editor and uh, creative bon vivant uh, here. Uh, uh, oh geez, um, I do submissions for Uncanny Magazine. So if you have sent a slush submission there, there's like a one in twenty chance I looked at it. Um, in any case, uh, I am also a fiction writer under the nom de guerre M. Daniel McDowell. Um, and Christopher. Well, since Kevin said he's currently Kevin Beckett, I like that angle, and I'm going to go with I'm currently Christopher Rowe. Um, I am a uh, Kentucky-based science fiction and fantasy writer. Uh, got about a quarter of a century's experience um, publishing science fiction and fantasy short stories and novels. And I'm interested in sword and sorcery as a reader and a writer. All right, cheers. Before we get into the conversation, I'm just going to mention a fact I neglected to a moment ago, which is uh, yeah, published, uh, The Dreaming City was published in 1961, but specifically it was published in Science Fantasy, issue number 47, volume 16, uh, along with a few other stories by the likes of John Rackham, John Cliffax, W.T. Webb, and Sam Moskowitz. There's a little opening bit that I'm going to read before I toss it out to the panel to get your thoughts and feelings to, to open this, this discussion up, which I really loved. Just above the title of The Dreaming City by Michael Moorcock, we have a little italicized blurb from the editor, presumably, which reads as follows. This is the first of a new series of stories by a new author to our pages. Unlike many central characters, Elric is puny on his own, but as a wanderer in another time and pardon me, in another place and time, he has the power of sorcery to boost his strength. I don't know, I got a kick out of that. And uh yeah, I think um Christopher, this was your idea, so I'm gonna let you open with just sort of some initial thoughts that hit you when you were doing your comparative reading. The first thing I noticed when I read, I, I reread both of these just this afternoon, in fact, and took, I am astonished, Oliver, your paltry one page of notes compared to my four. But, uh, very, very tiny handwriting. 
<laughs> Very impressively tight. The, uh, the thing that I really enjoyed uh, going into the Dreaming City was this just soup of proper nouns. In the first four pages, we have uh, 12 place names, half of which are real place names, and seven character names plus a nickname for one uh, for one of the places in Rare, the Dreaming City itself. And uh, that is a technique. That is an interesting technique. It is a pulp technique uh, to lend verisimilitude and throw, throw, um, throw characters into action. But the introductions to both of these stories start with something similar in that they start with a summation. They start with summations of where we are and when we are and of a past and of a potential future. And it is interesting to me in stories over 60 years apart that the writer, that Michael Moorcock, used this kind of similar device. Um, and I'm, and I'm going to talk about similarities and significant differences uh, between the ways that these stories were written all evening. But it pleased me that that, uh, that kind of like uh, rich soup, rich texture uh, supplied by proper nouns was present in both of them. And, um, and I find that true to be, you know, that's true of much of Moorcock's work. It's true of a lot of fantasy work, but I find it particularly effective here. Okay, I'm going to abuse my power as moderator, and I'm going to give one of the first things I noticed that delighted me uh, before I kick it over to Kevin and Jay. Um, one of the first things I noticed that delighted me in reading this original edition of the story was that the story takes place on Earth, which, unless I'm having a real brain moment uh, later, uh, it, it's not Earth. It's not the far, far, far past or potentially far, far, far future as it's given to us in the opening paragraph. Right, because that's, yeah, that's the option. You can, if you are a dour person, you look you look at it as the future, and if you're a hopeful person, you look at it as the past or something. Yeah, something exactly. Like if you think of the dreadful past, the Earth is known. Yeah, if you, be hopeful <laughs> or brood upon the future. Why not brood? It's an Elric story. Yeah, you already yeah. got brood in the first paragraph. Yeah, uh, I really like that, and and partly because I just um, I, I read the first thing of Elric I read um, that was sort of not just. I think it was a short story in the Singing Citadel collection, but after that, I went straight to Elric of Melibene where I'm fairly confident uh, it is not established that we are on some far distant version of Earth. It's, it's its own world, and certainly as the world evolved, you know, definitely it's not Earth, it's because of the geography and everything else going on. And it was so that was kind of neat to see this here, that one big change. It also made me think about how this character came out of Michael Moorcock being asked by the editor, hey, man, can you do me one of those Conan things? And he was like, how about I turn him inside out? But this particular thing of it being, you know, potentially a far past or future um, does make me think a bit of the Hyborian age uh, as, you know, and all that good stuff. So that's maybe one initial commonality with Conan as opposed to being just popped inside out. So I thought it was pretty cool. All right. Uh, that was one of the first things that grabbed me. Um, Kevin, what's one of the first things that grabbed you? Well, when you brought up the idea of the fact that this could be either the ancient past or the ancient future, uh, my most familiar version of this is the Elric saga from the 70s, 80s onwards, where up until more recently, when he reprinted original version from the 2000s, from this particular edition, where it's like, oh, this is set in like our Earth. He danced around the fact by acknowledging that time is circular. So theoretically, even though the universe remakes itself over the course of the Elric saga, this could be the far future of Earth, or it could be the ancient past, because it all circles around to the same point. Uh, reading it, though, 
I'm definitely seeing a lot more of like, yeah, turning around the uh, Howard inside out. One minor plot point is the story climaxes with naval battle and people who've read Robert E. Howard notes, Howard really loved his large scale land battles. And I don't know if it was just a coincidence of Moorcock himself going, well, if I'm kind of riffing on Britain, Britain was a naval power, so it has to be a naval battle. Or if it really was, Howard likes his land battles, I'm going to do a sea battle. Oh, neat. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> All right. Um, Jay, what was one of the first things you noticed that really grabbed you? Um, it's hard to say, really, because um, The Dreaming City wasn't the first Elric that I read either when I first came to those, these books. And so, like, trying to review it as like oh this is like the the initial reading that was definitely something kind of uh it was an experiment we'll call it that <laughs> <laughs> um i think the thing that i noticed most was definitely that for all that his diction has changed over the past 60 years there's still like a very like he still has the same verve which is kind of incredible to me and i'm sure that like the part of that is just that if you have a large tome of your own work in front of you you can refer back to it but I feel like there's just something that's something kind of innate in like the way that he strings words together that he was doing even when he was 21. And that's fucking incredible to me. <laughs> I think that's really cool to point out because uh, I have not often, but sometimes for people say, oh, well, you know, the earlier Elrics, you can tell he was a young man angry about all kinds of things in the world. And that cools off later. And while I would say, you know, I, I wouldn't read that deep into who he is through his work. Um, I wouldn't feel calm enough to do that. Yeah. I would say... Um, some of the later Elric's definitely are a bit less bloodthirsty, but I think that verve you are describing, yeah, it's right there up to the latest story. Yeah, it's it, it was it was kind of incredible to look at it because I've definitely like the the versions of this story I have approached previously were not this were not this version for sure, and so it was just it was neat to see the differences. Like, oh, I I'm pretty sure that tonally this part was a little bit different, <laughs> maybe a little differently, but in terms of like just just the the raw power in the words i was really kind of i was really kind of blown away um and i think that i think that there is something of that like that question of like being angry and young as like a relatively early relatively early elric story like that it informs it informs the early nature of the character but not the the whole of him which is interesting well, it's not relatively early. It's as early as it gets. And, oh yeah, no. I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm speaking about this in in the sense that I have I've read all of these stories many times, and so trying to bring right it and from that and you're right. He and he tinkers and he revisits and he mm -hmm. changes things up to match later things. I mean, one thing that really struck me, uh, one of the differences between these stories, and I know I'm in the minority of this, and I've talked about this before on the server and elsewhere. Um, I am not a fan of internal chronol internal chronol chronological internally chronological presentations of stories of things. I um if somebody I sense right now, if somebody, as they inevitably will, uh, do another complete Elric, you know, there's gonna be an impulse impulse. Somebody's gonna wanna put uh Folk of the Forest first, right? Elric is a young man in this. Tanglebones, a completely different character in the new story than he was in the older story. Yeah, boy, he felt different. Um, <laughs> um, you know, it's informed by this rich 60-year history of invention and accumulation of detail and all that sort of thing. 
And then you would go, if you did that, from this well-informed, sophisticated in prose and ideation, uh, ideation story to this kind of like raw and lean, and I would argue angry as well, story. I want to read, um, just briefly, I'm going to read a line that Yaris has at the beginning of The Dreaming City. At least I'm willing to take a risk, yelled Yaris. Anger, lancing from his slanting eyes. You're getting old, all of you. Treasures are not won by care and forethought, but by swift slaying and reckless attack. Okay? Um, yeah, those that is something are different I in the framework. <laughs> yeah, I, I am... Um, I sense that in the prose styles of these stories. Now, Jay, you're absolutely right in that there are like so many similarities. He has not, he has not abandoned that energy. He's not abandoned anything. He's adapted. He's grown, yeah. right? I mean, the man's I mean, in his eighties. He's, he's, and some of that's just like actual style as as style has evolved over sixty years of print of print publishing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's interesting. Um, as an aside, on, on the, you know, stylist fashion. Um, but one thing I noticed in the new one was his use of exclamation points, mm -hmm. which is a pulp <laughs> conceit that long predates Elric. You know, seeing a lot of exclama exclamation points is something you would expect in the 20s and 30s. He did not use it in those first six or eight Elric stories in, um, in the 60s. And now he's like, he seems to have adopted or adapted it from somewhere. He's not adopting it or adapting it from contemporary science fiction or fantasy because it is not fashionable to use a lot of exclamation points. And that really interests me. I mean, it interests me as a, as a term of art, as craft. Um, it really surprised me. And I didn't, I didn't quite land anywhere on what I think of it, but I did find it interesting. That's a good point, Christopher. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's one sentence near the end there where there's like three consecutive ones. Um, and I'm I'm here for it, to be honest. <laughs> it, it worked for me. Uh, yeah, okay. So where do we want to take this from here? Because I feel like there's so many directions. Shall we just focus on the Dreaming City at first and then go to Folk of the Forest? Or do we want to keep bouncing back and forth, back and forth as we compare different aspects? What do you think, Kevin? <laughs> Uh, I actually think the counterpoint between the two is interesting uh, because, you know, Dreaming City is a nihilistic story written by a young guy who's trying to tap into the energy of, you know, this pulp sword and sorcery that he loved as a kid growing up and trying to tap into that while doing something completely different. And then over 60 years later, like more time than any of us have lived, He's asked by a certain Canadian magazine editor, hey, could you do something <laughs> new? Yeah, just just something. I mean, I, I, I've said this before in a lot of podcasts and stuff, but like when I approached Mike, I was just was like, hey, do you want to do this new story? Something sort of sorcery about this length, about this schedule. And he you know, sort of checked me on the schedule because he was trying to finish his last book that came out. And then when it made, I made it clear we could accommodate him, he just was like, yeah, all right. And it wasn't for several months. It wasn't until, uh, I thought it was later. Uh, I checked my emails before we started recording. It turns out, I thought it wasn't until June, but I guess uh, my brain stretched time because it was actually um, early March, right after 
the crowdfund had succeeded, and thank God, because writing <laughs> writing Michael Moorcock to say the crowdfund failed, oh, well, see you later, would have been <laughs> the worst experience of my publishing career. Um, but instead, I got to write him and say, hey, went well, great stuff, how are you doing? And only then did he reveal to me that it was an Elric story. Um, so that was pretty, <laughs> that was pretty neat. Um, you know, Oliver, uh, I don't want to, I just want to suggest that Michael Moorcock could have found somebody else to publish an Elric story if, if you hadn't fun. Oh, I'm Sorry. sure he would have been fine. <laughs> no, no, no. I wasn't concerned for him. I'm saying I would have sucked big for me <laughs> to have that like yeah. go through my fingers. And have to write him back and be like, sorry, no dice. <laughs> uh, take it elsewhere. Ooh. Um, but yes. Um, yeah, so that was pretty cool because when I first approached him, of course, when he said yes, I just was like, amazing. You know, send me your grocery list at four to 6,000 words. I'll take whatever you give me, sir. Um, so yeah, I was very, very happy to get that Elric story. Uh, and of course, one of the first things I thought of was, man, where is this going to fit into the grand chronology? And also, ha, uh, I guess the saga collection is going to be a little less complete. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> everybody. Uh, so yeah, that's that's kind of fun to think about. But now I'm just talking about me and the editing part of me. Um, so yeah, I mean, maybe I will talk about that more later, but let's, uh, let's focus here. Uh, sorry, everyone. I'm a little sleep deprived by the dog. Uh, okay. Well, when you go to something you brought up, Christopher Tanglebones is a little bit different to say the least between, uh, him and Folk of the Forest and him and Dreaming City. Uh, for those who haven't read these two stories, would you like to elaborate on that? Sure. Um, I am, I'll allow it. I will allow that in the intervening decades, Tangle Bones has become a shadow of his former self. All right. His power seems to largely come from scholarship, which can erode over time in a man growing older, and also the silver wand, which we learn at the end. Are we doing spoilers at all? Do we care about spoilers? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, warning heads up for anybody listening. Uh, we absolutely 100% are going to spoil the bejesus out of these stories. It's the only way to discuss them thoroughly. So if you haven't read either and do not want them spoiled, Please save uh, this recording for later when you've read the stories. Okay, Christopher, uh, please continue. Okay. So the silver wand, which turns out to be a gift from his estranged, I guess, wife, um, his not, in fact, murdered wife, as everyone suspected. Uh, Tanglebones is a powerful sorcerer and teacher. And in, um, in the Dreaming City, he is a kind of battered and worn down servant who doesn't do that great a job at anything he is asked to do. He gets Elric into the palace. He misses his bow shot when he's trying to take out the eunuch archer. He then runs, which as Elric says, is the right thing to do. And then when he's trying to get uh, Simmeral to where Elric wants her to be, he gets tracked and, and, uh, and taken out by your coon and dies. He dies off stage, right? Elric sees him. You're bleeding out, friend. God love you. Ariok love you. I'm out of here, right? That is Tanglebones in the second, in the first story. In this new story, he has a completely different vibe. I mean, his characterization is different. He's still subservient, I guess, but he also has power. He has power. He is he is a he's a tutelary figure. He is the one that is shown. Um, he has shown Elric literally around the multiverse on the couches and so on, which is interesting. And again, like I said, I'll allow it. I will allow for the passage of time and the passage of and change. You know, as people get older, it 
reading them right after one another as I did this afternoon. I mean, I read them, you know, together a couple of weeks ago too, but reading them right after one another together, that was really a striking thing. But what it also suggests is the significant characterization shifts in Elric himself. Okay. In the Dreaming City, Elric's walking through the night in Emrir, and he hears the dying screams of slaves being slaughtered for the entertainment of their decadent masters. And not only shrugs it off, he kind of grins, right? Um, but again, all out, because he's much older. He has changed from this kind of youthful, more idealistic Elric of Folk of the Forest. And, um, you know, one thing I wanted to really point out was the richness of detail in terms of world building um, in the two stories. This this story was written, uh, Folk of the Forest was written with the benefit of, of um, hang on a second. What's going on? Can you guys still hear me? Yep, can hear you fine. Yeah. Okay. Um, this story was written for the with the benefit of 60 years of intervening development. And you can tell that. You can tell Folk of the Forest has had so much more thought behind it, so much more invention behind it, more much ideation behind it, more much imaginative work behind it. I mean, there's nothing about the couches or the silver roads or the or the not much about the multiverse in that early story. And I'll go ahead and say right now, I prefer the early one. Um, I like that action and energy and verb and raw sword thrust as opposed to a somewhat more introspective and definitely more fantastical story in um, Folk of the Forest. I think I kind of wandered off Tangle Bones there. Sorry. That's all right. We were talking about like, yeah, basically, can we buy... Not that I think not that I think um having it connect to the Dreaming City was probably high on Mike's priority when he wrote it, but uh the can we buy that Tangle Bones connect, you know, of, uh, as he's presented in Folk of the Forest would evolve into Tangle Bones as he is in the Dreaming City. Uh this reminds me of what I was looking through my emails for earlier. I couldn't find it, so forgive me if I'm paraphrasing a little bit here. But I do remember at one point in our conversations about the story, Mike said to me, he's like, Look, I've written Elric just a little bit. <laughs> just a little bit. So now, when I come back to Elric and uh, his his world, uh, I like to try and find a secondary character and flesh them out. So, plainly, that's what he was doing with Tanglebones, given that the story is as much about him in some ways and certainly has more reveals about him than Elric, who uh, I very much enjoy the way he's characterized in this as sort of more thoughtful youth that we can see potentially being becoming the guy from the Dreaming City, being a little more towards the side of being okay with the sounds of torture and, and digging them as opposed to here, where he says... Um, you know, he's asked about one of the, the wee folk there uh, about, you know, he said, you speak of you as if you uh, do not share uh, their appetites, meaning the other Melnabinians. Um, and Alec just sort of says, not entirely. Uh, and whereas, like, in the Dreaming City, it sort of implies the description that, like, yeah, he's not quite like the other men. <laughs> he's not like the other girls. He's not like the other Melnabinians. Mel oh, I can't speak tonight. Sorry. Melnabinians. But he seems a bit more in sync with their cruelty. And so, yeah, like, again, even though I don't, I didn't get the impression that, that Michael Morcott was too concerned with this perfectly aligning with the Dreaming City, um, I think it works for me. I, I can buy the Tangle Bones, perhaps gets worn down and ground down by the intervening years, not only perhaps forgetting some of the scholarship or what have you, but it's mentioned in The Folk of the Forest that the only reason Sadrick really tolerates him is because Sadrick's dead wife liked Tangle Bones, not because Sadrick likes Tangle Bones. And so you can see 
that sort of, you know, pass, as it were, um, eroding over time and tangle bones perhaps being treated more and more poorly and having fewer and fewer resources at the court, uh, leading to him becoming something of an unconfident, more sniveling figure that we see in the Dreaming City. Oh, that was actually one of the passages that I put a little post-it note flag on, actually, because I really loved it. <laughs> I thought it was such a good piece of character work in literally a single line. Um, I am coming at this from kind of the opposite end. In the, I actually really liked the way that the folk of the forest used Tanglebones specifically as a way to look at Elric from the perspective of someone who has known him for a long time and is much older than him. And that, to me, was one of the things I think I found the most striking about that story is how much of it really is, whether it's inside of Elric's mind or inside of Tanglebones' mind, the 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 switch off between that is is um probably a little bit more frequent than i would normally tolerate in a story but because of the kind of dreaming nature of most elric stories that is one of those things that you just sort of learn to roll with um but yeah i actually really enjoyed looking inside of that character specifically from the like from the vantage point that we have um because there is so much other material to draw from pulling a character that doesn't have a ton of fleshing out or a ton of background for that really actually worked very well for me. But I can see that someone who wants to view these stories in a, in a different, like uh, I, I hesitate to find a, a way to, um, I'm not, I'm not finding a way to, to put it. Like I, I can see where you're coming from Christopher in sort of that, that, that fleshing that character out in hindsight is, is maybe doing a disservice to the older material. But I actually, um, I actually really enjoyed that, and I thought it was a good choice in terms of sort of like the style of stories that I think Moorcock does really well. And um, Fred actually just pointed it out in the uh, um, in the chat there very well. The sort of like the the strange emotional detachment that often happens with these characters that are eternal and uh, and don't have don't have a linear time the way that we do. Which is an interesting point. Um... Actually, before we progress, about, uh, other people won't be able to see the chat. So I'm just going to yeah, read what uh, uh, Fred wrote. Yeah, That's I, all right. Uh, what Fred wrote was simply uh, Elric slash Tanglebone's uh, relationship is reflected in the, the the work of the final program, where Jerry Cornelius' old servant dies in the course of devoted service, and Jerry is unmoved and just keeps on going. All right, sorry. Go ahead, Christopher. I was just going to say um, that one of the interesting things that, I, that Jay just made me think of is that, you know, the... 21-year-old Michael Moorcock did not seem to be concerned with notions of contracted and expanded and different time streams and timelines and the way that time works and is a subject of perception. Um, so again, you've got this sophistication that is present in the new one, the newer one, at latest one, I guess, the, that was not present in that first one. And again, I would think I think it would be a disservice to Moorcock and his readers and to his characters to present these stories in some kind of chronological order in a you know in a suggested reading order. I'm always a fan of publishing stories in collections in order of pub with with the same characters in publication order, and which brings up something interesting, you know. Um, Howard was moving away from Conan, right? You know, it's it's a, it's somewhat of an old saw in in Howard studies that 
there wouldn't have been many more Conan stories had had Howard lived longer. And it's also something of an old saw that Fofford and the Grey Mouser maybe went 10 or 15 years too deep, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I have complicated feelings about Elric because there's so much more Elric, obviously, than of Conan, but also of Fofford and the Grey Mouser. Also of even Kane, um, Thongor, whoever. You know, Elric Marley. is probably the most... There are probably more tens or hundreds of thousands of words written about Elric than any of our other so-called big SNS characters, right? Mm-hmm. Is that true, do you guys think? Absolutely, yes. yeah. I mean, okay. I, I haven't done a word count off Liber, but I think it's fair to say yes, uh, absolutely. I was, okay, so oh, go ahead, Kevin. Oh, okay, I was just going to get back to the linear time and all this. I know Moorcock has said that, uh, and you can almost see the break when you actually read his uh, work in publication order, around uh, the 1980s when chaos math theory was beginning to actively start hitting pop sci. As you know, he was basically done with it, the entire Eternal Champion cycle uh, by 1980, and he really was not that interested until chaos theory began to come about and, you know, probably other things going on in his life and uh, experiencing in the world. Certainly if you read his overall work, the forces of corrupted law becomes much more of a bad guy than chaos uh, as time goes on. But this is a huge expanse of time. And that would explain why he's a lot more comfortable with this much more non-linear. And I have no idea how he feels about uh, Folk of the Forest being chronologically the first to read internally. It's certainly, as someone who read all the Elric saga, then reads this, this hits differently than if it was, you know, the intended order of chronologically, because if we read it this way, uh, there's this story, which is like Elric is most naive and idealistic. That's if you don't know this going in, you know, you're just reading, you're like, okay, well, you know, it's kind of fine. It's trippy. And then as the story goes on, it's heartbreaking as we see him just get worse and worse and worse until he's essentially only able to redeem himself in the very last book, Stormbringer. Uh, while, you know, if we just go by order of writing, it's this is heartbreaking in a different way because you know, obviously at this point in life, any new Elric story is frankly a rarity to be celebrated because we never know how many uh, more uh, there will be. And, you know, maybe because of the context of it appearing in, in New Edge where Moorcock was thinking about new readers, but this feels like almost, yeah, a gateway drug for, you know, readers now to like, oh, oh I've heard about Elric and try it. Uh, but for those of us familiar, it really feels in some ways like if this is the last story, it's a very sweet way to end the last ever Elric story that he would write. Yeah, I, I really like that a lot, you. Kevin, as a thought. Um, in general, I, I think I really agree with that, and especially because I feel like this story hits all of the notes of a, something that I would expect out of any given Elric story, even though a lot of the elements that we are familiar with in an Elric story are not present because of how young he is in this particular, um, in this particular tale. I feel like, I feel like there's still like moments that hit all of the notes that I would, that I would expect 
and some of them are done in a way that I I would think of lightly as sort of like a cheeky inversion of some of the things that we would see later on in, um, especially I think with uh, the various points where Ariok is invoked in this one and and so on, um, just sort of I <laughs> it felt it felt um it felt. I'm trying to think like it felt comfortable, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Well, actually, I think that's really interesting, Jay. Do you mind digging a little deeper on what you mean about how there were moments felt like cheeky inversions? Because I have some thoughts on that, but I want to hear yours first. Oh, <laughs> I don't really want to go into every single thought I have about that. But um, just sort of give, like, give us one of the big the ones. Ways, <laughs> the, way, the ways in which he avoids all of this sort of like the 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 ways that he sort of kind of cleverly dances around things that he would do with with. Um, say like a more skilled companion if you had moon glum on his hand instead of tangle bones you know those sort of those sort of things that that i think of as like the like the buddy moments are are very different coming from an, a sincerely older guy who has is more of a mentor figure to him than the, like a contemporary if if more if we can think of moon glum as a contemporary which i think mm. at least in sense of like their abilities in battle and so on i think that they're they're contemporaries um and so it was interesting to have him balancing off of um a very different a very different like companion character like the interactions were very different the interactions with Ariok I thought just I I was very tickled by the way that they were handled in this um I'm trying to think of a, any other like specific ones cuz just in general it felt just like um well, certainly for me, uh, you know, when I when I first got the story and I was like, oh, OK, it's younger Elric. Oh, I bet he didn't feel like putting Stormbringer in here because he's had Elric chop off a few people with Stormbringer and eat their souls. And it's, you know, as a device, Stormbringer feels pretty done. I mean, not that you couldn't do anything with him again, yeah. not that I, you know, but it just I just kind of felt like it was a way of getting around uh, retreading that water. And then, uh, you know, having Ariok show up and be like, can't help you. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so yeah, in some ways it does feel in dialogue with uh, Elric's history in the sense of like the expectations of us folk who have read most or all of the previous stories. And I look forward to hearing, I hope I hear from at some point from someone who read their first story in New Age Sword and Sorcery, first Elric with this one, Folk of the Forest. And then later they're like, man, you know, he gets a sword, eh? <laughs> <laughs> it's fucking wild. <laughs> exactly i felt like there was in that in that regard i felt like there was kind of something for for a wide variety of readers i hesitate to say every reader but i feel like there was something for for a lot of readers in that because there were things that were done done just sort of in unexpected ways but in ways that fit the pattern of an Elric story well, you know, here it's pretty something fun to throw at you all because, um, yeah, I did, I, I did, I did have the privilege of working with Mike on editing this thing, and so of course I and our excellent copy editor Jordan Douglas Smith don't want to leave him out. Uh, he also made some very insightful suggestions. Uh, you know, I I made some edit suggestions to to Mike, and uh, which was intimidating, yes, of course, um, but he was a consummate pro and gentleman and sweetie about the whole thing. Um, yeah, most of the suggestions I made were basically the kinds of things that you could understandably encounter when you're in your 80s and you've been writing this character for 60 years uh there were some base elements of elric that were not presented in a way that, that i felt was entirely as clear as they could be for a brand new reader 
So that was really most of my notes, which is sort of like, okay, let's make this part a little more friendly to new readers because it's hard to imagine, uh, you know, when you're running him for 60 years, but there's always going to be someone who's finding Elric for the first time and it might be this story. So what we've read, in, in essence, are two stories that could very well serve as someone's first Elric. Um, let's say, uh, Kevin, we'll start with you. How do you feel each story works? We don't have to say which one's better. We don't have to have a blood sport here, although you're welcome to give your preference. But... Uh, which one do you say, how, how do you say each one works as an intro to Elric? I feel the Dreaming City uh, works great as something that really taps into essentially the northern thing. You know, it, people have talked about like, you know, obviously Stormbringer is a riff on Tyrfing from Norse mythology and Moorcock has been very open about his admiration of Paul Anderson's The Broken Sword, which is very much a Viking fantasy. Um, and it really feels, even though he's much more fantastical uh, than doing Nordic, it really hits that high-end sense of operatic tragedy. I mean, by the end, when he's like, I don't have the line in front of me, so I'm getting it wrong, but line like, we will give this age uh, something truly evil, you know, when Elric basically goes completely to the dark side. And, uh, you know, it works as a self-contained story that's really fantastical and really mind-blowing. If you look at, at where Moses' sword and sorcery was at that time and what Morcog is doing, you can also see this as a really great, in its inversion of the tropes of that time of like instead of like you know a heroic barbarian who rescues the princess and like you know uh the battle is successful and like you know he, he goes on to celebrate instead we have this you know obviously albino over civilized emperor with like a cursed magic sword who goes to try to rescue the princess feels so completely and utterly he kills her and you know the battle is a, a complete failure and instead of like a triumphant, well, let us celebrate, you know, we have somebody succumbing to pure despair. That has a real impact when you realize what he's doing, where he's tapping into that energy and kind of brushing off all the heroic fantasy tropes that most of the other clonins, as people like to call them, were celebrating. While on the other hand, Folk of the Forest is also kind of, as Jace mentioned, really inverted a ton of uh, tropes that we expect, like, you know, where it does feel like instead of, you know, actively, you know, Elric does do like a gallant attempt at trying to commit violence to save uh, people. And it doesn't really work. And at the end of the day, it really comes down to instead of choosing sides and both being bad and, you know, Elric sort of like playing the two against the middle, Instead, what we have is a much more idealistic uh, way of, you know what? It's two different societies, one very large, one very small, who can't under understand each other. So from each other's perspective, they're enemies, but it is breaking down those lines of communication. I mean, for an Elric story, it's pretty damn Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good point. <laughs> that's a good point. Um, I want to suggest that the newer story is much more fantastical and even fairy tale-ish than the first and the older story and of much other Elric. I mean, you have, you got fairies and giants, you know? Um, mm. And that surprised me. I like that they both turn to somehow be related 
or appear to be related to Meldemanians. Um, I love the time distortion effects. I love that when the little fairy guy says, you know, you fought this fight for 12 days, and which kind of undermines this. Well, it'd be kind of a facile Deus Ex Machina, Deus Ex Machina reading where, okay, Tangle Bones X shows up and, like, you know, whack somebody, whack some people with a, with a, with a wand and everything is saved because they're saying the power for that came from Elric's immense combat. But from the giant's point of view, if I'm reading this correctly, hmm. his dying from being eaten and alive from the, the masthead creature um, lasted like four seconds, right? From their point of view, uh, as, as I'm reading the way that time is understood by each of those societies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, it's really fun. Yeah, it's much slower for the giants and much more ponderous for them. And then, of course, yeah, much more fleeting for the, uh, the little wee ones. Sorry, Kevin, go ahead. Oh, uh, I was just going to say, yeah, and I don't know how much of it was consciously on Mike's part about thinking, like, I don't know how many conversations you had with them in terms of, like, where New Edge, uh, what you wanted to accomplish with New Edge uh, in regards to sword and sorcery and what he thought about. But it does strike me that a lot of his inversions are in ways that are frankly, you know, ways that, you know, we would like. I mean, you know, we all love a, a good blood pumping sword fight, you know, to the very end, as we like with the Dreaming City. But, you know, the very fact that this is much more, there are no real bad guys. There are no, you know, there are misunderstandings and that eventually things will work out. It I very, liked that it was a situation of incompatibilities. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. fundamental incompatibilities. That was, in that that way, was something I thought was really striking. In that way, it makes you think a little bit of Le Guin, who tends yes, to focus more on much. culture shock uh, and, and, and similar rather than uh, blood mass, et cetera. Here's a question. Uh, at a rough count, what is the body count in The Dreaming City and what is the body count in Folk of the Forest. Well, Folk of the Forest is easy. Uh, zero. Unless I'm right. woefully forgetting something. No, I and, agree with you 100%. And it's thousands and thousands. And yeah, it's untold. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know how many uh, Melnibanaans were supposedly, you know, on the in, in, the, in the dragon caves and uh, in the Navy waiting to pounce on the back end there versus how many people in the city were enslaved or murdered. But it just sort of, well, there sort were of casually... Five, there were, there were 500 ships in the fleet, and one of them survived. Right. The attacking fleet. The attacking fleet. Oh, yes, yes. Pardon me. So, yes, the, the humans who died as well. I don't know why I was fixated on the Mel 30, 30 barges in Mel but I don't remember the uh, the scale of them. There was like 11 or 12 dragons, yeah. each one with its own rider. Um, yeah, but certainly the, the, a good chunk of the, of the people were wiped out. Yeah, it's hard to say, but I get your point, Christopher. Yeah, it's absolutely, you know, the. The, the casualties of a small war versus uh, a misunderstanding where nobody to my memory perishes. And it's definitely... Things I, oh, go no, go ahead, Jay. Oh, um, one of the things that I thought was interesting about um, the, the way that the new story frames the old story is that I think it makes the older story even more tragic which was something I was sort of surprised at in my like 
kind of flipping between the two of them after I had read them in the in the prescribed order. <laughs> and actually, there's a question. I I read Dreaming City, then Folk of the Forest, in preparation for this day. Did you do it the other way around? Did you do linear no, or, or no, no, no. So what I did was I read I read the Dreaming City, I read the Folk of the Forest, and then uh, I sat on it for a couple of weeks, uh, and then I read a whole bunch of other things that I had to read for work. And um, so after that, I had to come back to it again. And so I've, I've kind of had to flip back and forth between them. And, uh, and that was just something that I sort of observed over the past day where I was trying to refresh myself on. Uh, okay, on okay. In a way... Uh, Kristen Wright. Go ahead, Kevin. Oh, okay. Uh, thank you. Um, I was going to say, in a way, like, I think one of the reasons why we're all a little bit leery of prequels uh is you know star wars where a lot of people but you know i find the star wars prequels interesting because you could see what lucas intended and failed dramatically mm -hmm. at of deepening the story that ideally that we would see this idealistic young boy who ends up becoming darth vader um mm -hmm. i do find uh in this way warcock accomplishes this effortlessly here and this is the reason why I guess prequels are so tempting, where you deepen the tragedy. And certainly seeing the arc of Elric at his most idealistic and young and hopeful, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, going through this truly downward spiral. I mean, it's only really in the last book five or book six of uh, the things that Elric begins to actually stabilize, you know. Uh, Process. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and... It'll be interesting. I don't feel that this Folk of the Forest should be at the beginning of the next big Elric uh, thing. Absolutely not. No, no. I'm I'm in complete agreement with everybody. That's like, yeah, this is a reading order thing. I think, I think in part because again, to me, like this story is from the perspective of Tanglebones, and I feel like the ones where, um, where they're the voice is not that primarily of Elric because I mean there are stories that I think of as primarily like Moonglum stories where Elric is there um and and so like for for that for that perspective like I, I don't think that this is I don't think this is a first story I think this is a story that informs the tragedy later after you've already read the tragedy <laughs> I yeah. agree it really feels to me like a, a beautiful epilogue to the whole thing yeah. which is why like I completely also agree Kevin that should this wind up being the last one? And we didn't, we had no idea. I, I have no insight into that, uh, listener. Um, I, it would work. I think it would work very well. And if I were to be put in charge by some fluke of fate of the the ultimate final collection of Elric, I would I would put it at the very end. I think as a, as a gentle coda to the whole thing, because you can totally read this as your first Elric story. I genuinely believe like it works quite well that way. Um, although it would seem very odd to those of us who've read it before. Uh, the other stuff. Um, but I, I think it really works best when it's in dialogue with its own work. And actually, that brings me back to a question I wanted to mention uh, earlier. Uh, Kevin, you did a lovely job of pointing out a lot of what the Dreaming City is in dialogue with, you know, Paul Anderson, the Northern thing. And of course, we all know Conan. Do you feel, folks, uh, that the folk of the forest was ex almost exclusively in dialogue with uh, the long publication history of Elric? Or did you feel you saw anything else in there? Uh, Christopher, even quiet for a minute. Uh, why don't you uh, give us your thoughts on that first? I was eating chocolate. <laughs> um, yeah, the um, you know, I'm not sure I would put it last um, because it's quite different than much of the corpus, right? It is gentler 
uh, to use your word, Oliver. The um, and the Elric saga is not a gentle saga. I'm not sure it would be fair to sign off with something that's kind of charming. It, it, this is a Fall of the Force is a charming story, mm-hmm. and Elric is not a charming person. You know, Elric is a sad, mad, murderous bastard. Um, and I don't know the Whitefriar books, Frederick. Oh, the, uh, sorry. Um, to, oh, those to, are the new ones, right. Sorry, Christopher, can I interrupt you for just a moment? Uh, listener, sure. uh, someone in the chat here just asked, uh, is, as it continues themes from the Whitefriar question mark books. Um, Fred, are you referring to what I think of as the um, Dream Thief uh, trilogy, uh, where we get to meet Elric's counterpart uh, in Nazi Germany uh, and all that good stuff? I think I could be wrong. I think he's actually referring to the current autobiographical uh, trilogy that Mark Hawk is doing. Oh, I'm being a big dummy. Jesus. Yes, I know what you mean. Sorry, I'm so locked into Elric. I wasn't thinking else. <laughs> right. He's written some other characters uh, and books. Um, <laughs> Just a few. Uh, a few. Fred, Fred, yeah, exactly. Fred, Fred is in the chat confirming that yes, the latter. He's referring to what Kevin correctly identified. <laughs> uh, pardon me, I, I I have a thought later about the the Dream Thief trilogy in this story. But um, anyway, back to you, Christopher. I don't know how I would. I mean, my impulse is always to order internal chrono uh, to order order of publication. I think it's more fair to readers, writers, and the characters. Even, however, in this case. I'm a little flummoxed. Um, you know, I would. You know, I would suggest that. Okay, I've got a question for the group. Is a and I don't want to get into subgenre wars or anything like that or definitional wars, but is a story about Elric because it's about Elric definitionally a sword and sorcery story? I will start by saying not necessarily. I think a lot of people have made a convincing argument that Stormbringer is more epic fantasy due to the world and beyond uh, scope of the thing. But because we all think of Elric as one of the sort of holy trinity by mashing Favreau and Mouser into one aspect of that trinity along with Conan, uh, I think we understandably want to refer to it as being sword and sorcery for sure. Now, does that mean is the icy folk of the forest is not being sword and sorcery? Well, I don't want to. You know, I'm, I'm trying to moderate more than uh, run my mouth here. So, uh, Kevin, what are your thoughts on this? I find like you know, in terms of Elric's you know flirtations with epic fantasy, in a way, like you know, when he actively Stormbringer was written very early on, very close to Dreaming City. So, you know, in terms of the you could sort of say that he wasn't even technically sword and sorcery at the beginning, and a lot of the sword and sorcery came about more once he began to fill in stories like Wild of God's Laugh and others, where you just have Elric as this wandering moody albino with a sword mm-hmm. getting into various adventures. You know, in terms of this particular story, if it does feel like sword and sorcery, it feels in dialogue with... I have no idea how much Mike read the various conversations about the current state of sword of sorcery, but this very much does feel like Mike thinking long and hard about the tropes of sword and sorcery and seeing if he can do something that would be appealing to sword and sorcery audience, but would be, you know, a lot more fantastical, fairy tale like. Uh, so I personally consider a big tent that, you know what, if this is way sent us for a new age sword and sorcery, it's sword and sorcery. 
but I can see how other people who need to draw clear lines might say no, but to me it is. I agree. Um, because I like, you know, I'm with, I'm with Oliver and really like in Brian Murphy's seven um, base elements, he calls them, right? And, but I'm also a big fan of what Oliver says about those seven elements being the the posts in a weird ass seven sided wrestling ring where the how do you put it the the ropes are stretchy or whatever you can, yeah you can, yeah like you can you know those those posts demarcate uh, boundaries but the ropes running between them are very elastic and you can have fun right. uh, bending them outwards so, to leap off them and do cool moves. <laughs> I wrote out this afternoon, I wrote out the seven base elements, and I tested both of these stories as well as I could against both of them. Dreaming City hits every one of them right in the middle. There's no question at all that, you know, man of action, outsider hero, personal motivation, dark and dangerous magic, all of it, right? And to my surprise, actually... Of the seven, I'm going to give Folk of the Folk of the Forest four and possibly five, which is plenty, right? Yeah, no. Brian's very adamant that like you don't have to hit all seven; otherwise, it's just uh, sparkling wine or whatever. <laughs> Could I deposit maybe um, the other terminology for our for our beloved genre, subgenre? <laughs> The other terminology that came about in the 60s and 70s was heroic fantasy. And I find that this probably closer fits to what I think of as heroic fantasy than it does to what I think of sword and sorcery. However, I feel like those things have such an overlap that it doesn't really matter to me so much. <laughs> well, I know, Jay, you and I have chatted about this, and I think this is oh, joined yeah. our conversation well, here. <laughs> you you put it you put it there's kind of like uh, one time because there's there's no one framing as we all know but oh, yeah, one framing that. one framing you gave that I liked was you felt that uh, broadly speaking you can kind of put a lot of people on a spectrum running from Conan on one end to Elric on the other yes now this may sound asinine given that this is an Elric story <laughs> <laughs> but where do you feel this felt <laughs> fell on I mean scale? I mean to me this one so the thing is that I actually see it as I, I actually see it as a bit more of a, a bit bit of, a bit of triangulation where yeah. I see Conan on on one end there and I see Elric on the other and then sort of like oh like a call it a some sort of a triangulation um, where we get the first wave grimdark stuff so stuff like Glenn Cook which I have I've enthused at length to Oliver about but uh, mm. in terms of uh, uh, what we're looking at here, I would definitely say that it's closer to like the the pure end of of Elric, where you're seeing the noble side of him. You're seeing the side of of Elric. I think that um, in the in the in the folk of the forest specifically, I think you're seeing you're seeing the version of Elric that um, cannot exist in some ways. He can't stay that way, but seeing him that way gives you a framework for the rest of him, and that is that's powerful stuff. Um, as Fred po mo mentioned in in the chat just now, I've always felt so sword and sorcery plus epic fantasy equals heroic fantasy, and that's basically where I'm at there. I think that there are a lot of elements of Elric that tip into what could potentially be considered epic fantasy. Although I I don't always agree with I don't always agree with the seven uh, the seven signposts uh, 
but I again I come at this I come at this from the complete opposite spectrum where I sort of fell into sword and sorcery kind of kind of ass backwards compared to everybody else. So um, yeah, or I took a pretty trad path. I mean, there's a few <laughs> trad paths, but for me, it was Savage Sword of Conan comics. Like that yeah. was absolutely it for me for a long time, and then eventually I discovered the rest and devoured yeah. it uh, as much as I can. Uh, still working on it actually. Um, yeah, I I you know do Whereas I, I just think found it's... my copy of Law and Chaos when I was cleaning the other day, and I was like. Oh, I haven't seen this in a while. That's the, uh-huh. the Elric, uh, the Elric um, Wendy, Wendy Peeney uh, art book oh. um, done in the, the early 80s. And um, it, that was my that was my entree into the field, so to speak, was was Wendy Peeney's artwork. So, nice. um, yeah. So, well, this yeah. all reminds so me how far apart uh, Conan and, and Elric are on my, <laughs> on my scale. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, this all reminds me of a conversation uh, that I had with David C. Smith, uh, another long-running uh, sword and sorcery author, um, when I, who, I was, who appears in New York Sword and Sorcery issue zero and, come on, brain, two. Um, but yes, <laughs> uh, and we were talking about, you know, the, the old saw, like, what is sword and sorcery? What's heroic fantasy? And he was like, well, you know, he felt that his uh, most recognizable character, arguably, is Oron of his own creation. He also wrote Red Sonja books, uh, co-wrote. Um, he felt that what made his Oron character not sword and sorcery was that what made it heroic fantasy was basically, yes, yeah, scale and motivation. You know, Oron stories have to do with huge kingdoms and good and evil and all that good stuff. And and motivations revolve around basically saving the kingdom slash world and so on. And and that frame was was it. So in this story. Well, you know, uh, the scale is very flexible. It's kind of funny, actually, considering we have these small to large <laughs> Melnibanaeans and, and their cousins. It's story. incredibly literal, yeah. And the resolution is to make everybody approximately the same size. Yes. <laughs> I, just, I just love it. <laughs> I thought it was so genius. <laughs> it's so, it's so, yeah, it's, it's absolutely the, one of the classic, you know, genius by way of elegance and simplicity. Just make everyone literally have the same perspective. <laughs> just like, oh, okay. So, All right. At the end, the ship of the sea people, sea people, the former giants, sails off to go back home. Mm-hmm. The winged people, there's no resolution there, is there? The city is just now full size. The last we see of the city is a steel portcullis and tangled bones, and is a strange wife walking out of it. Am I correct in that? Um. I think so. I, I have it in my head that the city vanishes, but maybe I'm just adding that in my imagination. Gosh, I just well, I thought that too. But so I went back and read those first, those last two pages, like three times, and there's nothing that says it does say. There's a description of the city as luminous, which mm. I can kind of halfway see is wavering in and out of existence, but that is not actually what luminous means. So I don't know. Yeah, the silver wand was gone. I'm just I looking at my copy right luminous now. Luminous meant to be liminal, perhaps. I'm not sure. That's interesting. Mm. That's an interesting observation. I certainly internalized it as just that it was shimmering in a a light and glowing kind of way, but I don't know that I I don't know that I took it further than that because I was pretty pretty engrossed in the rest of the details going forward after mm-hmm. that. Yeah, the emotional hit of the reveal yeah. uh, with Tanglebone's wife. It pulls you just, away. I, I was like, I'm good. Off. I'm blissed out. I don't care about, you know, like I assume I, I have, I have no desire to write Mike and be like, well, Hey, what the fuck? <laughs> Where was the city <laughs> in all the other stories on the timeline? Why weren't there two cities on the limit? Yeah. Like on Imrir. <laughs> so Fred has just made an interesting point in the, in the chat. And it's something that I want to talk about. 
Uh, is it weird that Melumine ruled an empire but missed these other people on their own island? Well, there's two things there. One, we don't know how long they've been there. They don't know how long they've been there. The giants think they've been there about a year. The the little people think that they've been there at least a hundred years. But there's also a notion of there's also a mention of thousands of years. There's also a thing where uh, near early on where Morcock uses the words millions of years to describe when the Milibanaeans came to this island, right? Millions of years. Now, we've already got, we're already on the tail end of 10,000 years. So I'm I'm trying to figure out whether, I'm trying to figure out what's going on with some of these details about, okay, you have, you're in a powerful kingdom, admittedly a decadent and declining kingdom that's down to one city, but people are pretty old, there's a deep history, and you can get lost less than a day's horse ride out of town. Okay? <sighs> now, my feeling is that if this was something that a student handed me that I would make notes on and ask questions about. However, this is not something a student gave me. This is something an acknowledged world master of fantasy gave me. So I'm wondering if there is something subtler going on with some absolute repetitions and at times um, contradictory details in the ways it's presented. And I want to know, if that is the case, what am I missing? What is going on with some of these details? Millions of years? That's not in the corpus before. There's never been any suggestion that Melibinaeans have been there for millions of years until this story. I feel well, uh, like uh, I'm... Even so, I'm still like nowhere near other Moorcock scholars, I guess. I'm the person who've probably read a lot of Moorcock, almost exclusively at the expense of a lot of other sword and sorcery authors, but... I always got the impression there there is the Dragon and Sword, one of the last John Dacre Aracose novels. There's technically two, um, with two separate endings. Uh that ends with essentially the elvish race that he encounters under a different name is in fact turns out to be the distant ancestors of what will become Meldabone, which might be what Moorcock's thinking about. Certainly, the other thing I'm thinking about is the fact that Moorcock is a huge fan of Mervyn Peake's Gormenghast novels. And yes. Peake's Gormenghast is very much not a satire, is probably too strong a word, but is very inspired by post war Britain, where people are adhering to meaningless rituals and is very inward focused. And certainly Melaboni is very much his version of the British Empire. I can't help but think that inward focus, thinking we've been here forever, we're the empire that never, uh, where the sun has never set, would actively mean that they're actively ignoring ethnic tensions within their own island, as well as Welsh would tell you. And we're not even going across the sea to the Irish. And that's very much how I read it, but where it's more metaphorical, but certainly I can understand in terms of literal explanation, you almost have to deep dive into Moorcock's head to uh, understand what he's talking about, about millions of years. But anybody else, I can totally understand if you're like, what the heck is he talking about? 
Yeah. Oh, I my reading of it is that that especially because especially because these both of these stories deal with Imrir, the Dreaming City. I think that those things are, I think those things are not literal. I think that the interpretation of time in most Elric stories is fractious at best, and so it's one of those things that I mostly look at as sort of like a funny little detail more so than something that I'm looking for a linear like exact timeline. And that's part of it. part of that is just because of the way that I approach those stories, which is that. I read them in the order I was able to get them get my hands on them and I did not always retain a whole lot of information from book to book myself because I read a lot and I have severe ADHD <laughs> but I've read them so many times over the years now that I have a very specific sort of like I have more of a sense of them than I than I have of the literal meaning of of uh things like the passage of time in these stories um Ziphon in the uh, chat mentions that uh, with Gormenghast, there is also a slight Gothic influence, which deals with decay and stagnation. And that's definitely something that Mervyn Peake was in conversation with. Uh, Mervyn Peake being a a person who was deeply affected by the Second World War, um, the whole of Gormenghast as a a shape is pretty much one giant angry grief howl interpreted through a satirical, I would call it satirical, um, series of novels that um, darkly discusses the decay of empire. And I think that's, I mean, the decay of empire is the entire conversation with Elric. Um, but I, I will spare you on that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. I just <laughs> want to say, this is how damn awesome Warcock is about the fact, you know, we are ranging everything from like hardcore containing nitpicks to talking about like Mervyn Peak and a lot of others. <laughs> I, I I just think it's just how Titanic a figure Moorcock is that you know peak that he can be in conversation with those things. Yes. yes. Simultaneously he's in conversation with Conan, which Conan, I think from the Howard perspective is very is is one thing. And then the Conan that like pop culture created is another creature entirely. Yep. And then it's so like I mean he's in conversation with both of them, not always simultaneously. But yeah, then he's also in conversation with stuff like Gormenghast, which is sort of just mind-blowing when you think about it just at how and now his own history is. yes just it's you know. how skillful he is with it it's- oh god yes and you know it makes me think of something like this is just a thought exercise because there's no way to make it happen but there's a part of me that wishes i could temporarily you know memory erase and read the dreaming city is like oh this this hot new guy michael Morcock <laughs> with this new elric person because you know how do you how do you read you know, especially once you've read a whole bunch of his stuff and participated in a lot of the conversations that happen online uh, sure. with his work, maybe you've even done, you know, the thing of going a little extra and reading some of his essays. Like, how do you read Folk of the Forest, certainly uh, the latest one, without feeling, without having your, your take on the story be affected by your relationship to your uh, your perception of Michael Moorcock and, and those of us who've been lucky enough to chat with him a little bit, their relationship with Michael, you know, because... Uh, certainly when I got the draft, uh, my perspective was unique, uh, uh, fairly, fairly unique in the sense of, oh, you know, I'm thinking, oh boy, I, you know, I, I can't the story and I hope it's really good. And I, you know, I, I have faith in Mike, but, you know, some authors uh, get really big and later in life and they kind of get high on their own supply and they, their stuff deteriorates, you know, but uh, I got to tell you, like I said, I, I, the edits I had to give were very minor and largely just about making it, you know, a little more friendly for new readers uh, covering up the you know some things that were completely understandable for someone who's written the character so long to not explain in as much detail, um, 
So, you know, not, not, not that he's as sharp as he ever was, let me tell you, even on the, on the first draft. Um, but also just the fact that I had been emailing with him and and discovered that it was, I was lucky enough to have a 10 out of 10 would meet your hero again experience. You know, uh, at least he's human and he has faults, as do we all, I'm sure. But in my experience with him, he was just an incredibly humble and charming and lovely man. Also an old British man, which, you know, my parents are British and my family all going back are British. So I was sort of preset to love him a little more because of that. We ended up talking about cats. I got to send a cat picture to Michael Warcock. He loves Siamese. <laughs> You know, and and I this may sound like I've gone on a rant, but no, actually, because what I'm I'm trying to give you here is some of the framework for how when I read this the first time, when I printed it out, took it to uh, you know a, a place up on Bloor Street in Toronto, sat with a pint. I couldn't think of any other way, you know, another thing I wanted to drink while I was reading this draft, and just sat down and was like, holy shit, I'm reading a first draft of uh, you know the new Elric story by Michael Moorcock. You know, my perspective of it was so specific and warped by my my where i was standing my by my point of view it was so unlike someone picking up dreaming city in 1961 and being like ah let's see what this thing is um and so i i guess what i would like to put to you three on the panel here starting with uh let's say you jay how do you feel the your personal relationship to you know your take on michael through his work and interviews and letters and so on shaped your reading of the folk of the forest and perhaps maybe your uh, forgiveness for things like the little details about the millions of years being mentioned. Well, I mean, for one thing for me, again, I, I've kind of said this a couple of times in this conversation so far, but um, for me reading the story and having the, having the bulk of the, like the action coming through a perspective that um, is a, that of a mentor looking at, looking at a young Elric and, and not necessarily knowing um what all tragedy is going to befall him um it, to me like that was kind of inescapable like that perspective of him where it's not so much that like he has ownership or mentorship of his own character but we all kind of feel possessive of our our people <laughs> mm -hmm. and so that that came through to me in that story in ways that i don't think it necessarily has come through in others i didn't but I didn't feel like that protectiveness or that um, that age, that that kind of favorable distance. I don't think that it um, I don't think it was negative in any way. Like to me, that was like part of the joy of reading the story. Um, so I didn't I don't know that I like I couldn't really part my my view of it like, ah, yes, Michael Morcott coming back to this character who's kind of defined significant portions of his career, although like not the whole thing by a long shot you know it was it was neat to have his his perspective on uh on himself looking in so to speak like that was that was really charming to me about that story more so than the individual details or any any single facet of the story just sort of like that the character moment that you get throughout the whole thing was right striking uh, so christopher i saw in the chat there you had to step away from the mic for a second what i just did was go on kind of a tear describing my very personal individual uh, framing and relationship to Michael and, and the uh, manuscript and how that affected my reading and how part of me kind of wishes I could just do like a temporary memory erase and come to either this or the Dreaming City uh, brand new, fresh, you know, and, and, and feel those feelings. Um, and Jay was just explaining, uh, you know, their, their, you know, how their take on Michael affected their read of The Hook of the Forest. Uh, so Christopher, I'm curious, how does your relationship to Michael's work 
Uh, how did you feel that affected your reading of The Folk of the Forest? Did it make you more forgiving, less forgiving? Uh, did it change anything else? How, how did that go for you? Uh, all right, without getting into facile uh, uses of the word like, um, <laughs> I, um, you know, a year and a half ago or so, I was asked to write a review of the last Elric novel, which was really a fix-up. Um, and I took a deep dive into Elric, deeper than I'd ever gone before, and um, read different versions of different stories. Jay mentioned that they've read different versions of, of Dreaming City. Um, I don't know, man. I um, I have complicated feelings about what Moorcock has done with this character and this endless revisiting and tinkering and even retitling in some cases using titles that were previously used for other pieces um thing so i kind of like and i'm using the word like um <laughs> i like those pure quill first six or seven stories from science fantasy quite a bit more than i even like Lurk of Melimide. Uh, which was the first one I read because I read the Science Fiction Book Club two-volume set that came out in the early 80s, and it had, you know, it did internal chronological order with a lot oh, yeah. less material uh, than what we have now. Start, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Jay, yeah. Could you repeat that? Oh, I said that's a hard place to start. Um, okay. I was lucky in that I just sort of, like, read Catch as Catch Cam instead of, instead of trying to do om- omnibus editions early on, but... Mm-hmm. Um, I read yeah, the omnibus I... collections as a kid, so. <laughs> and I, I mean, my it. favorite of. Go, Go ahead, ahead, Christopher. Go ahead, Kevin. <laughs> uh, I was going to say my favorite of the collections is the is it Del Rey that did that six or seven thing, six or seven trade paperbacks from the aughts that purported to be uh, the publication order, but even then. There was some tinkering. Off, I can't remember for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that one. Hmm. Yep. My relationship with Elric, and I know a lot more about Elric than any of the other characters. The the only you know, the only other two series I've read by him are Coram and Hawkman slash Count Brass. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, I've not read a lot of the new wave stuff. I've not read any of the the newer, you know, insertion stuff, the semi autobiographical stuff. And you know, Elric is I, I have this thing that I call the George R. R. Martin problem, which is that people who are fans of Song of Ice and Fire are in no way the same thing as people who are fans of George R. R. Martin. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> My favorite George R. R. Martin stories are the novellas from the early 80s, like Sand Kings and stuff like that. Um, I appreciate what George has been doing, uh, well, has been doing uh, with those epic fantasies. Uh, I read the first two or three of them. They're not really my bag. Um, They're good. I mean, they're well-written. They're George R. R. Martin things. But, you know, uh, so I don't know. I don't know. I can only judge this story by other Elric stories, not by some kind of larger relationship I have with Moorcock or Moorcock's work. 
And uh-huh. in that context, I find Folk of the Forest different. I find it significantly different than what I think of as an Elric story. Elric is kind in this story. Uh, Elric is sensitive in a way that he is not in other stories. I mean, his the sensitivity he expresses in, I guess, earlier stories um, is kind of nihilistic and self-serving. I mean, what gets him sad is the fact that he murders the woman he loves. Not of his own free will, but later on he does murder some friends of his own free will. And so it's just different. It's a lot different for me than what I think of as an Elric story. Uh, not least because it's got, a, you know, it has actual fairy tale elements to it. And that is something that I don't associate with Elric. So, but it is an Elric story. I mean, the, and it is, it benefits from this vast corpus of 60 years of development especially in world building, but it doesn't seem to benefit from 60 years of characterization. Um, So it's kind of this weird bifurcated disconnect for me. I like the story. I, I do think it is an Elric story. I just think it's different than other Elric stories. Oh, neat. Um, Before I, um, sorry, that sounded just like, huh, neat. (laughs) Just yes, I, I found that very interesting, but also I uh, want to make sure we uh, get some time for Kevin to give his answer to my question. But Kevin, before I kick it over to you, I'm going to provide the listeners with a bit of context because your read was made kind of interesting and unique, even from my own. So a little bit of background here, folks. Uh, Michael Moorcock at one point uh, was flying uh, across the Atlantic Ocean from point A to point B, and before he made that flight, he made the uh, decision to send me what he had thus far. Of the story, he sent me a draft that got uh, pretty close to the end, but didn't actually have the end yet. And he he sort of joked in the email. He was like, "Oh well, you know, it's just in case the plane messes up the landing. Here's what I got. <laughs> like you can possibly <laughs> publish what I what I managed." And I'm just like, "Oh Jesus, I hope that doesn't happen." <laughs> Talk about the British nihilism, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And of course, when I get this, I think, "What well, do I do? I read it?" You know, and ultimately, I'm still stunned because I, I tend to be a person who is not big on surprises and so on. And uh, if there's chocolate on the table, I'm shoving it in my mouth. So I, I would have thought, you know, I would have read it, but I managed to somehow find it in me not to read it. I waited until um, Mike sent us the complete draft. However, I, of course, shared everything uh, in the private uh, Discord channel that we call Ness Editorial uh, with Kevin uh, Nat Webb, our layout and design person, and then copy. Jordan uh, Douglas Smith. I said, "Hey guys, uh, this happened," and they were like, "Can we read it?" And, you know, and I was like, "Sure." I mean, I don't see any reason why not, but just heads up, the ending's not there. And they were like, "We don't care, man. Let us read the new Warcock." Oh my god! Um, so I sent it to all of them, and uh, they all had their thoughts and feelings that I asked them not to share with me beyond, "Does it work?" <laughs> and they were like, "Yeah, it's good. Just needs an ending." Um, so that was kind of interesting. So I just wanted to lay that background uh, for you, listener. Because, like as I say, uh, Kevin had a different reading experience from me on top of uh, his own personal perspective as a, a Moorcock and Elric fan. So, Kevin, with, with that little bit of preamble, could you please share with us how your relationship to Moorcock, Elric, and all that good stuff uh, shaped your read of the story? 
the original version, I mean, I would have to track down the original version again to make sure my memory holds up. But from what I recall, it had that fantastical element, but what it because it did not have that ending, it did not have that emotional punch. So you, I was seeing the the invention of Moorcock and his imagination, but I was not, you know, it was still leading a good story. And, you know, honestly, a good, straightforward adventure story with Elric would have been fine. And I can say, since we're talking about early versions, Tangle Bones was not in the original version. This was just Elric on his own going out into forest and encountering these people. Wild. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> What so, a secret. Thank you for sharing. No problem. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, we could see that, I could already see that there was dialogue about subjective experiences in terms of time, timey whiny stuff and, and all that. That Obviously, on some level, that was on Moorcox, uh, had the idea of subjectivity and misunderstanding and, you know, Elric being very ideal it essentially ended with him like in combat, but there was no real resolution. So the very fact that, you know, as he noted, there, you can even find an interview on the Forbidden Plant YouTube channel where he's admitting that he had not composed an ending yet at that time. Uh, when we did receive the ending, I mean, as a guy who's, you know, starting to actively write and send things out, just seeing that creative process is fascinating and it was certainly truly awe-inspiring to sort of see just by inserting one element tango bones really all of a sudden everything crystallizing uh to the point where you know Moorcock, uh you know all i shared was a little bit worried that the ending might seem a saccharine but uh to me it, tango bones deepens the story and moved it from what would have been maybe an okay story that might have been chronology aside been something you would find in like weirded white wolf uh before the dreaming city or like being at a black blade where you know where it's just a bunch of short stories that don't really they are good but not really the key emotional high points tango bones right. turns it into an emotional high point for me it, it it suddenly pushed it up to that dreaming city level just in terms of yes you can see the points from this naive idealistic boy and yeah, there's a little bit of metaphysical thing of the fact that Tango Bones and his wife, who has, you know, the uh, infamous JC initials that Jerry Cornelius has, uh, <laughs> you know, actively speaking <laughs> lovingly towards Elric, it's the reason why it feels like it's working on multiple levels here. It's working as a deep humanization of Tango Bones to make his later appearance internally in the Dreaming City more tragic. And yeah, on some level, it actively feels like Mike, through Tango Bones, has inserted his own feelings about the material much more transparently than he did initially. And, you know, I give him credit for actively willing to go that way. You know, he was a bit afraid that might turn off people. I honestly don't know what a brand new person reading story will feel, but for me, as a longtime Elric fan, it was an emotional gut punch. I was not expecting that. Yeah, it it made me I I don't I don't want to assassinate, but it definitely the gut punch I felt like just absolutely you know hit like a Mack truck. Uh, made me think a little bit of what I felt when I uh, read to the end of Storm Raider for the first time. Yeah, like it was that it was that big. Yeah. Um, and before uh, Kevin, I'll, I'll I'll let you continue, but I just want to slip in something here while it's uh, more relevant. 
to what you were saying about the ending and all that good stuff. Uh, folks, uh, bless him. <laughs> Mike, t- Mike took me on a, a very enjoyable uh, ride as an because he sent me that uh, draft uh, that was incomplete. And I don't remember the word count off the top of my head, but I think at that point we were still looking at the story being closer to 4,000 words. He was telling me to expect around 4,000 words at the low end of the four to 6,000 window I'd, I'd asked him for. And I was like, sure, whatever, Mike, I'll take it. Sounds great, Elric, give me, give me. Um, and then we were getting pretty, you know, we're getting pretty deep into the process with the printer. We we're getting as far as we could without actually sending them the complete manuscripts uh, or whatever you want to call it of the, of the issues. And I was like, okay, uh, hope I hope I get that complete thing uh, for Michael soon. And then he emailed me and said, Oliver, I've just had a massive brainstorm. I'm rewriting the entire story. <laughs> and I was like, oh God, <laughs> you know, anybody else, I, I might have problems, but I, I trust you, you know what you're doing. And so about another week and a half, I think, Tops uh, goes by and I don't chase him. I trust him, it's Michael Morehart. And then he sent me very close to what is in the magazine. And uh, I think you so, told me 8,100 when I asked about this. Yes, a little, yeah, a little over 8,000. So all of a sudden the story doubled in terms of what I was told to expect. <laughs> and, and I found out in the same email that he gave it to me, you know, there was no, there was no warning. And he just was like, yeah, you know, it all came together. And, and, and the page one rewrite was not actually him writing a whole new story. It was him realizing, oh, crap, you know, Tanglebone should be in here and all this stuff that we've talked about tonight. Uh, I presume. Um, and then so he just probably re, you know, re, re went over the initial 4,000 and then you know, wrote the rest um, is my guess. I have not interrogated him deeply about this. I was just so grateful to get it and to get such a lovely story and to get so much more than I had been prepared for. Um, so yeah, yeah, that was a, <laughs> that, that was an emotional ride for me unto itself. So Kevin, uh, you've talked very eloquently and thank you so much for uh, about your perspective as the guy who got to read uh, an early draft and then the, what came later. Um, in terms of your relationship to Moorcock and his work at large, how do you feel that affected your read of uh, the final version? More caught, I maybe mean, it made you more forgiving, or yeah, gone. Yeah, um, I I won't deny that's part of it. Like uh, sometimes, as everybody knows, Warcock can be a very opinionated man uh, in regards to things. And my relationship with Warcock at times, due to his nonfiction, have gone from reading him as a kid to reading him in twenties, thirties, where I, uh, where at times I was just like. Around the White Wolf era, I wasn't just sure. Okay, is it me? Am I not clicking with Mike? Because he would release these forwards with very aggressive opinions. I wasn't just sure if he, how much, you know, I was in sync with him. If I was in my twenties and he wrote this when he would be a middle-aged person, I would bounce off this so much, uh, so much more. I would just be like, "What the heck are you doing, man? Like, you know, where is the guy who wrote the Elric saga?" Now, maybe it's because I am a middle-aged person and, you know, Moorcock is in his 80s. This hits much more differently because it's different generations. Moorcock is writing for people who are like, you know, as we're seeing, as uh, Zephon Sacriel mentioned in the comments, that there's a new generation of readers coming up who are like in their teens and 20s right now. And it's certainly interesting for me, as a side note, occasionally reading social media reactions from younger people to Elric. Uh, as people have noted over time, Elric has done very well with Japanese art, and you can see a number of brooding anime emo types from Final Fantasy, etc., who owe a thing or two to Elric. And certainly a lot of younger readers seem to click with Elric that way. But to get back to my mm. own reaction, 
um, yeah, at this point, even though Moorcock's aiming uh, theoretically for 20-year-olds, the fact that all of us, it's gone through a period of time, his message of youthful hope, like, and this is the thing about Folk and Forest, that strikes me very much a message of hope. I mean, it really is almost a classic 60s, all you need is love, <laughs> you know, and uh, you're reading it now as a middle-aged person from an old person. This hits so much more differently because it is that recognition that of how we were all youthfully innocent once and we were idealistic and we really wanted to change the world. And over the past 60 years, the world has changed. I'd like to think overall for the better, although it does seem at times that we are heading towards the events closer to Stormbringer. But, uh, you know, overall though, it, you know, it definitely feels like something that if you're a longtime reader, I don't know if it's necessarily a longtime reader, but I do think age and experience does uh, have the story hit a bit differently. And uh, unfortunately, I guess we won't know till like a 20 year old reads Folk of the Forest for the first time and never read any other Elric, what their reaction will be. But for myself, it definitely very much hits far more for me now as a middle-aged person than as a young man. Well, and I love that, I would right? suggest because... that Michael Moorcock did, never wrote an all-you-need-is-love story in the 60s. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and that's one thing I've come to love about Moorcock is he is a contrarian. Um not mindlessly so, but you know, the fact is he's always been iconoclastic with his opinions and yeah. you know, he's never really changed uh, those opinions. And I do appreciate the fact that, you know, at a time when it seems like a lot of other people his age are disappointing us, you know, the fact that he still r remains like, you know, very young and vibrant creatively, you know, and, you know, uh, Sorry, I just saw in the comments Stefan Sacrell saying, I do want to point out the younger generation of readers, at least from what I've seen, aren't too keen on grimdark or nihilistic stories. Moorcock might be aware of that. And I do mm. think at a certain point, uh, it depends on people, but I can certainly see reframing uh, Elric to make clear, because I've definitely seen some people react to Elric as dark fantasy, where they, they like the gloomy nihilistic person who just wants to see the world burn. And I get that. That's part of me as well. That's one of the reasons I respond to Elric. But I can also understand at some point now in this day and age, when there's been a lot of people, who, characters who are that nihilistic, um, reframing it to and deepening Elric as more as like going, you only become a nihilist after you've had your ideals completely disappoint you. And that certainly, if you look at the arc of Elric uh, in terms of internally uh chronologically that's very much what happens here and i think even showing even beyond the well-meaning but kind of shall we say centrist democrat of an emperor you know he is an elric maliboni um <laughs> you know basically actively seeing the young i want everybody to be together this is where the, uh you know the actual contrast with his 60 years of work is where as Christopher notes, if Moorcock's never written it, all you need is love story. Well, he's writing it now because he knows all you need to love hits differently than if he had said it when he was younger. That's, I think that's a very mm -hmm. fair assessment. Mm -hmm. agree. Yeah. With, with all the wisdom and experience of uh, being, I, God damn it, 83, I believe he is now? He just I, turned I, 84 I uh, last month. Yeah, in okay. December 18th. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. Pardon me, 84. 
um yeah like that point of view uh that pers- where he stands now yeah does give it so much more weight uh, i really love it um everybody i have enjoyed this conversation so much i feel like i will oh, absolutely. go for another 24 hours uh or a thousand years or millions of years or maybe just one <laughs> depending on your depending on your relative size um but uh I, we should probably get some kind of uh winding down here so uh why don't we i'm gonna go around the table here and get kind of closing thoughts then i'm gonna do a little bit of a push and a little bit of a reveal uh for those of you in the chat um uh those of you listening will be hearing this uh, a lot later than when we record it and uh yeah and then i want to read one little closing passage as our outro so um christopher do you have any final thoughts that you haven't managed to fit in or that have come to you while we've been talking I think people should read both of these stories. I think this has been a valuable experience, and I think that it's a valuable experience for newcomers to Elric and old hands at Elric to do exactly what we've done here, uh, to read and think about these stories in conjunction with one another and cognizant of the fact that they were written over well over half a century apart, uh, but they still remain in conversation with one another. Mm-hmm. how about you jay oh yes i mean I, <laughs> I hate to be like well yeah what christopher said but yeah i think i think it's interesting to view this not just in the convert like the long convert the fact that we can say that that uh, that that michael moorcock can have a long conversation with himself is kind of incredible and i think that's <laughs> part of his charm um but like that he's also he is in conversation with all of those other books that we've mentioned that he's influenced by and so on and and having more depth to that bench is never going to be a bad thing for me um that's that's part of um part of i think what i enjoyed so much about this was just that that it it did deepen some some things i wasn't expect expecting to have deepened for me Hmm. right uh kevin how about you I almost feel like apologies if it did seem like a monopolize the show, uh, but uh, oh, I, I asked you questions. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Uh, yeah. I just want to say, uh, in terms of like you know, I want to thank Christopher for even suggesting this. I mean, you know, occasionally mm-hmm. we might uh, tease Christopher about his publication order as a best, but uh, <laughs> I think uh, we can see. And one of the things I like is on some level. Mike himself is aware, you know, how you read in publication order plays differently from the internal chronology, especially because it keeps revising it, that it keeps hitting a bit different. Uh, I'm not too sure if the most recent Elric saga has made any more changes than before, but I recall the 90s where he used the Von Beck family from one of his other series and started changing names of some of uh, characters and other things so you could sort of see the spread out Von Beck family throughout the entire multiverse. Uh, but it's very fascinating. I just want to, again, want to thank Oliver for the opportunity to just have one of my all-time favorite authors. Uh, I, I still recall my when I was 13 reading Behold the Man while mm-hmm. uh, listening to a band that would become one of my favorite groups, Faith of War. And, you know, it's just, Moorcock is responsible for so much memories of my life and getting a chance to actively, indirectly see the creative process and, essentially feeling the story hitting me personally in a way I honestly don't know what would have happened if I was not even directly involved with the magazine, but 
being at a point in my life where I can reflect on my own reading history and reflecting on how other people's reading histories have been with Elric and hopefully as people continue to read Elric in the future or wherever they start, you know, just realizing, yeah, this is unmistakably one of the titans of fantasy, both as an author and Elric as a work of fantasy spread over 60 years. No matter what you choose, you're always going to see an interesting facet of Elric. I think that's a really great way to put it, Kevin, because, you know, one thing I wanted to get into earlier and just couldn't quite find the room for it, we don't need to have a big conversation now, was, you know, I think there's definitely, yeah, a a divide, not only in, uh, say, publication versus chronological, but also pre-1980 to post-1980 Elric. You know, some people prefer the more bloodthirsty Elric, some people prefer the more, prefer the more, pardon me, um, ethereal, maybe introspective, thoughtful, uh, you know, multiverse spanning, diverse uh, later Elric. And I can see elements of both uh, in in the story uh, that I was so lucky to publish. I would just say, you know, to anyone listening to this going like, oh, geez, where do I start or what do I prefer? Um, I really do think that while one can certainly make arguments for some Elric stories being better or worse, uh, per se, I mean, of course, quality varies over that many years and that many pieces of work. I think there is incredible value in avoiding false binaries. Check out his work in all eras and just enjoy the way that your perspective will shift like a person growing giant or small uh, as you move <laughs> through uh, the, the various uh, eras and, and, and you know, fill in other things uh, through, say, getting, reading the Internal Champions series, which uh, I have not yet finished, but I'm already enjoying what uh, the way it's reframing certain things for me uh, in what I've read in the Elric series where I'm more versed so yeah i would say i would would double down on the thank you uh, to christopher for having this wonderful idea and to you kevin jay and christopher for joining me for this panel to you uh dear listeners for checking out the magazine checking this out and just uh, all of you contributing uh, in your way to me having deeply precious uh life experience of getting to work with uh the the last living legend of uh second wave sword and sorcery uh, who's still with us and still vital and still producing more words than I, I manage <laughs> in any given month. Uh, this has all been just a, a wonderful thing for me, and I, I think I'll you know go to my grave feeling grateful for it. So with all that said, I'm going to give you guys a little reveal. Uh, what will be a reveal for you in the chat? Uh, listener, you're probably hearing this. Officially made the reveal through our socials, uh, through the magazine. Michael is returning to New Edge Sword and Sorcery in 2024. Uh, he is very busy with his new novel, so best I want to be upfront about that. It will be a reprint of an obscure Elric tale, one that was not included in the recent saga, you know, all the stuff collection. And it will, of course, be paired with new art and maybe something else small. I'm still I'm still figuring that out. I've got to, I've got to email Mike what he says. So also, by the way, for anybody who's heard me call him Mike and been like, well, gee, you're chummy. Uh, <laughs> I promise this is not false uh, familiarity. If you if you get into reading uh, his essays and what have you outside of his stories, um, you know, I found a story, an essay of his uh, on this thing we call Sword and Sorcery very much about what it's called and why we call it that uh, from a 1961, actually, again, we're going back to 61 uh, issue of Amra, the fanzine. Uh, and at the end of his uh, interesting little essay on the whole thing, he signs it Mike. It's just how he signs his emails, and it felt weird and disrespectful, like calling somebody else's parent by their first name uh, in, in our initial emails. But I, eventually, I just, you know, it just changed in my head, and now I've had a few funny moments online where I'll be like, "Oh yeah, Mike, this," and they're like, oh, "Mike, <laughs> no, you mean Mister Michael Moorcock?" I'm like, "Yes, I do also mean that." <laughs> he, 
he's earned he's earned all the honorifics uh, and what have you and formalities. So yeah, I'm very happy to say that you know uh, Mike will be back with us. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I hey just, Oliver, Oliver, yeah, yeah. thank you, thank you for making all this happen. Thank you for like putting in you know finding Michael Morcock, Mike, Michael, Mike Morcock as we call him. Um, <laughs> you know, thanks for making this happen. It's um it's an amazing thing that you uh allowed or that you prompted or whatever. Oh well thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Um yeah and you know what I'm I'm just ah uh, there's somebody I should thank but if I thank them publicly it might lead to a lot of people bugging that person for, for Mike's contact details. So I'll just say to the person who put me in touch with Mike and made it possible for me to talk to him, you know who you are and you're probably listening to this. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, okay. So, all right. Well, all that said, and uh, I've got to be wary I don't get a little choked up here. Um, I'm going to just close as we opened with the little reading of the, the very top of the Dreaming City, the above the top of it. Uh, the editor's little funny note about Elric being a puny guy. I think it was just for a little bit of fun and dra dramatic uh, business here, I'm going to read a smidge of the very end of the Dreaming City. Uh, we did mention spoilers up front, right? <laughs> um, I really love how in the Dreaming City we have. The story, it happens, lots of stuff happens, and at the very end, uh, Elric finds himself in the water, bound to Stormbringer, thinking very hard about Jesus, you know, I'm, I'm, this thing's a parasite, but I'm, you know, without it, I'm, I'm useless, and oh good, but it's useless without me, you know, geez, and, and he says the following, and I'm just going to read this last little bit as our send-off. We must be bound to one another, then, Elric murmured despairingly, bound by hell-forged chains and fate-haunted circumstance. Well then. Let it be thus so, and men will have cause to tremble and flee when they hear the names of Elric of Malibane and Stormbringer, his sword. We are two of a kind, produced by an age which has deserted us. Let us give this age cause to hate us as we wander its young lands and new-formed seas. Strong again, Elric sheathed Stormbringer and the sword settled against his side. Then, with powerful strokes, he began to swim towards the island while the men he left on the ship breathed with relief and speculated whether he would live or perish in the bleak waters of that strange and nameless sea. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Good night. Good night. All right.